Today's show is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code UNIVERSE at checkout to get 10% off. And by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash universe. Nobody ever said it was easy being a homo sapien. We're a needy, greedy, irrational species capable of making all sorts of messes and misery for ourselves. Our brain power might be our greatest gift, but it also gives us the ability to invent ideologies and then go to war over them, to build great factories and cities, and destroy whole ecosystems in the service of them. Our brains torment us in other, subtler ways, too. We're a species that's smart enough to ask great, sweeping questions about ourselves and the world around us. How did we get here? What happens after death? Is there any purpose at all to the entire blazing universe? But we've never been remotely smart enough to answer them. But there's one question that does, at last, have an answer. And it's one that has tormented us perhaps more than any other. Are we alone? Is there life elsewhere? Do we live in a universe that teems with biology, intelligent and unintelligent, wise and brutish, Or is Earth the only lit bulb in a dark and dead cosmos? And the answer is, no, we're not alone. Yes, there is life. And what's more, there's lots and lots of life. You protest we've never seen any evidence of it? Doesn't matter. You think that life is too complex to have happened more than once? You're wrong. You like to believe that human beings are a special breed, living on a special world, orbiting the most special sun in all the cosmos? Well, deal with it, because we're not. There's life in space. Take it to the bank. Today on It's Your Universe, we're going to pause in our weekly tour of the solar system, which we'll resume next week with a visit to the planet Saturn. For now, though, we're going to consider the thrilling, perplexing, sometimes scary puzzle of extraterrestrial biology and answer some questions that were posed on both Facebook and Twitter addressed to Et Time and Et Jeffrey Kluger. The best place to begin thinking about life in space is to concede the obvious, that in all the millennia we've been looking, we've never seen even the tiniest sign of anything living anywhere but on the little biological beachhead that is Earth. And the best answer to that objection is, so what? There's a lot in the natural universe you don't see. Gravity, atoms, the heart of a black hole. But that doesn't mean they're not there. Life, similarly, is there too. Simply because chemically, mathematically, rationally, it has to be there. The elixir of life is water, and the universe is awash in the stuff, sloshing in the innards of moons in our own solar system, riding aboard comets, hovering in the interstellar medium itself. The molecular building blocks of life are similarly common. Hydrocarbons are everywhere, 
Amino acids have been detected in meteors, sometimes in various stages of development, percolating along in the damp interior of the rocks for millions of years as they rode through space. 99% of your body and the body of every living creature known is made of hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, four of the six commonest elements in the universe. What's more, if you're looking for places for all that pre-biological chemistry to bloom into breathing, wriggling, thriving biology, consider that our sun is just one of 300 billion stars in the Milky Way, and the Milky Way in turn is just one of perhaps 100 billion galaxies. While as recently as 20 years ago, we knew of only eight planets in our own solar system, we have now spotted thousands, and those are only in the one small patch of sky we've been scouring for exoplanets with the Kepler Space Telescope since 2009. Most astronomers now believe that virtually every star of a sufficient size in the cosmos has at least one planet. There are a lot of people studying the mystery of life in space, but none more comprehensively than the researchers at the NASA Ames Research Center in Moffett Field, California, and at the nearby SETI Institute, which searches not just for life in space, but for intelligent life. I recently visited both places for a story for Time magazine and came away more convinced than ever that, yes, life is out there, and yes, we will find it. As astrobiologist Scott Sanford said to me, the universe is hardwired to be an organic chemist. It's not a very clean or tidy one, but it has big beakers and plenty of time. Thanks to the fantastic voyage of the Kepler Space Telescope, we've been able to discover an amazing number of new planets around distant stars. You don't need a spacecraft to make your website discoverable. Use Squarespace to create a site that stands out from the rest. Squarespace offers customizable designs so that you can easily tailor your website to fit your needs. With their drag-and-drop tools and modern templates, they make it easy to build a site that looks professionally designed, regardless of skill level. No coding required. Plus, you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code UNIVERSE to get 10% off your first purchase. It's amazing to know that when we are seeing distant objects in space, we're actually looking into the past. Here on Earth, it can feel like we're rushing into the future as our busy schedules make time feel like it's flying by. Get entertainment that can keep up with your schedule with Audible. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products to choose from. Take Audible wherever you go by listening on your smartphone, computer, or tablet. Listen to books such as Origins of the Universe by Jack Arnold. This book explores the past 4,000 years of scientific efforts in order to better understand the big questions of the cosmos. Find this book or other books of all genres at audible.com. 
As a special offer to my listeners, you can get a free 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash universe. That's audible.com slash universe. If humans have been pondering the life and space question almost from the moment we had the ability to ponder anything at all, it took until 1953 before the first great chemical test in the field was conducted. That was the famed Miller-Urey experiment, in which two researchers at the University of Chicago sealed a mix of gases similar to the composition of the Earth's early atmosphere inside a chamber and then fired periodic bursts of electricity through it, an experimental stand-in for lightning. When they resampled the contents, they found that some of the basic elements had assembled themselves into amino acids. It was easy, it was instantaneous, and it likely happened again and again and again on the early Earth. That produced results. Within the planet's first billion years, life had emerged. As SETI astronomer Seth Shostak said to me, Life on Earth got started very quickly. That's like walking into a casino in Vegas, pulling the handle, and winning the jackpot. You say, well, either I'm very, very lucky, or this is not a difficult bet. In fairness, Shostak's point might be a little simplistic, since amino acids are many, many steps from life. But Scott Sanford, a NASA Ames researcher, is now building on the Miller-Urey work exploring something called amphifields, Y-shaped molecules made of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen that are very common on Earth and also in ices in space that have been bombarded with ultraviolet radiation. What makes amphiphils special is that they bond easily with water at one end and with fats at the other. Drop them in an aquatic environment, and they come together into membranes that naturally fold closed to form something very similar to cell walls. The bigger those membranes get, the likelier they are to incorporate other molecules that protect them from harmful radiation and allow them to thrive in all kinds of acid and base environments, which is exactly how simple biology builds and improves itself. But there's a big difference between cellular membranes, essentially part of the cellular hardware, and RNA or DNA. They're the cell's software. It's information storage system. And it's the critical difference between a mere mechanism and a true organism. A hurricane or a forest fire, after all, checks a lot of the necessary boxes to qualify as life. They're dynamic, self-organizing systems. They're born, they grow, they multiply, they eat. Trees and houses, in the case of a forest fire, heat and water, in the case of a hurricane. And they produce waste, lots and lots of waste. Ultimately, too, they age, they weaken, and they die. So why aren't they alive? The answer is that they have no way of gathering and recording information about their brief, destructive lives, passing it on to the fires and hurricanes that follow so that they can become bigger, more sophisticated, and more powerful. 
Once you do have a storage system, Charles Darwin can take you the rest of the way forward. But the question of how you go backwards, how you get the RNA that writes your code, is a mystery. As one astrophysicist has put it, it can't be Darwin all the way down. It's here, at this biological hinge point, that the scientists who believe in the straight-up business of chemistry and the creationists who argue that there can't be a genetic code without a conscious code writer come to philosophical death blows. The creationists have their answer. It's God. The scientists are still struggling to find theirs. A simple, spontaneous process analogous to the Miller-Urey dynamic might be all there is to it. Some way a crude form of RNA or DNA just pops into being. A much more fanciful-seeming answer comes from the world of quantum mechanics. In the quantum world, time doesn't have to run forward only. It can fold back on itself, repeating and repeating like a Mobius loop that has no beginning and no end. That might mean that there are sentient code writers after all, but they're not divine. They're simply us, or an advanced species like us. In the quantum world, it's entirely possible for wise, advanced minds to write the code and create the self-generating systems that give rise to DNA and RNA, and then, effectively, to flip that information backwards in the repeating circle of time, where it becomes incorporated into the earliest, crudest, one-celled organisms. They, in turn, grow up to be the modern-day code writers, and round and round it goes. Such an idea ought to make no sense at all, except that the more refined the quantum equations become, the more they show that, yes, that's exactly how time might move, and that opens up all manner of unlikely-seeming possibilities. There are, of course, much more fundamental issues to address before we get into the hallucinatory dimension of the quantum. So let's consider some of the questions that were raised on Twitter. A tweet from Et Christine Walsh says, This is from, from my 12-year-old. Does all life need the same elements as we do on Earth? Can life exist with other elements? That's a great question from a smart 12-year-old, and it has a complicated answer. The most common possibility cited for alternate biology involves life forms that use silicon, not carbon, as their base element. Silicon in some ways behaves very much like carbon, at least in the ease with which it bonds with other elements. But it couldn't use water as the solvent in which biology plays out, because some of the theorized silicon processes would actually explode in the presence of water. A more promising solvent for silicon would be liquid ethane and methane, which is one of the reasons Saturn's bitterly cold moon Titan, which has ethane and methane lakes, intrigues scientists so much. But there's one more problem with silicon. Carbon tends to produce pliable, easily flexible tissues like our own, while silicon forms rigid structures. As Scott Sanford of NASA Ames put it, Take a look outside. There's a big difference between trees and rocks. Another question on Twitter comes from Et Gordon Goofer, who asks, How, how possible is it that bacterial or microbial life floats around in the atmosphere of gas giant planets? The answer to that one is, perhaps more possible than you think. 
Bacteria do float free in Earth's atmosphere, and some very sober scientists believe something similar might be found on Venus, which now has surface temperatures hot enough to melt lead, but didn't always. Early in Venus's life, it was a more temperate place and perhaps had abundant water. Life that got started on the surface might have migrated to the sky when the conditions became impossible below. Depending on the temperature in a gas giant's atmosphere, the same thing could, at least theoretically, be possible there. On Twitter, at Paxman and others ask a similar question. SETI researchers scan the sky for radio signals from intelligent civilizations. But how can we ever hope to hear from them when a signal from even a relatively nearby world, say 1,000 light years away, would, by definition, take 1,000 years to reach us? The answer to that one is unsatisfying. We just have to be patient. It's always possible that we could detect a transmission tomorrow that was beamed out long, long ago and only just arrived. Even then, though, confirming the signal would be a very tricky business. When how are you, how are you? and fine thank you, fine, fine, thank you are separated by thousands or millions of years, it's kind of hard to get much of a conversation going. On Facebook, Dan Schaefer asks, Is, Is it, it possible, possible we've encountered life that exists in a form we cannot yet recognize? That is a big and very exciting question, and the answer is an emphatic yes. It's behind what astrophysicist Paul Davies of Arizona State University likes to call shadow life. Davies argues that life on Earth may have started over and over and over again, each time using different materials and different processes. If so, it's possible some stray descendants of those strands of life might still exist, right beside you, in the air, on your clothes, riding with you in your car, but they're entirely invisible to us because we don't even know what to look for. If we can't identify E.T. when he's sitting on your lap, it's no wonder we may not recognize him when we find him in space. Also on Facebook, Mary Hansen Webb wants to know, How will we look for life on a planet orbiting a distant star? And could we do so without interfering with it in the process? This, of course, is the same important idea Star Trek raised with its concept of the Prime Directive. The imperative of not altering the course of alien civilizations, even if they're just microbes. The good news for life forms on remote planets is that they're so far away from Earth, there's no risk we're going to stop by for a visit and tromp all over them. The good news for earthly scientists who are thus stuck with hunting for life from afar is that we're developing the techniques to recognize signs of biology in distant atmospheres, methane and other chemicals that, in the proper mix, suggest the presence of something living. It's not the same as shaking an alien's hand, but it's solid evidence that someone's at home. Finally, on Twitter, at DanielKong25 wants to know if it's possible, possible that the idea and basis of the movie Prometheus is real? That life on Earth or other planets may not actually have originated in place, but instead was imported from elsewhere aboard a meteor or some other kind of space rubble. 
The principle is called panspermia, and it's even been expanded to something broader called lithopanspermia, that basic biology may travel not just from one world to another, but from one solar system to another. The short answer is that there is nothing to rule either theory out, as the amino acids that show up in meteors suggest. If earthly biology is any indication, life is robust and can thrive anywhere it sets down. As Scott Sanford told me, at the earliest stages of life, you're just not going to worry about the made-in label. The discovery of life in space, even a single microbe on a single world, light years away, will be a powerful, epical change for our species, in some ways bigger than we know. Chris McKay of NASA Ames likes to speak of what he calls the zero-one-infinity rule. We already know the number of worlds in the universe with life is not zero. We know it's at least one. If we find even one more, there's no scientific reason for the number not to be unlimited. So now we're looking for that second one. In the meantime, it pays for all of us to get ready for the moment we find it. It will be humbling to know that we're not as special as we've long thought, but it will be so nice to know we're not as alone as we always feared. In the end, having a little cosmic company will probably matter more. I want to thank everybody who wrote in questions on Twitter and Facebook. Please feel free to continue the conversation. I will continue to answer. And please listen in next week when we resume our tour of the solar system with Saturn, the most glamorous world we've ever seen. Follow me on Twitter, at Jeffrey Kluger. I am Jeffrey Kluger, and this has been Time Magazine's podcast, It's Your Universe, produced by Panoply.